Chapter 5 Ryan headed out to find his car. Fog was rolling over the Nutter House towers the same way it had the Golden Gate Bridge. He wondered about the girl, Katarina. Funny. Ryan was fighting to rebuild his life just so he could be a dad to his son, and here was Katarina, loud and clear, but with a dead father. At least Sean had a stepfather. He passed an old theater whose marquee was covered with day-glow writing in the style you might expect to see spray-painted on a New York subway car, Skate and Shred. Teenagers huddled around the entrance. It looked like a natural habitat for a kid like Katarina. The fog worked its way into his bones, and he picked up his pace. By the time he found the probe, he was shivering. He started the car and flipped on the heat. As the engine warmed, the car filled with the smell of tired antifreeze. That smell reminded him how far he had to go, but he'd made the first step. He had a place to live. He drove through town along the boulevard, paused at a stop sign, and then turned up the hill toward Nutter House. Something darted in front of him. He hit the brakes hard. A woman on a bike headed straight for him, her long black skirt trailing behind. Did she have a death wish? If not for her pale skin, he'd have never seen her. In the instant that her face crossed his headlights, she looked at him with a blank stare and then paddled off. Chapter 6 Struggling with his outdated computer atop a box of books, Ryan opened the door to his new apartment, stepped in, and fell over a pile of contracts. He managed to cradle the monitor so that it didn't break as he went down. One more trip up the stairs, and everything Ryan owned was in the apartment. He set the tiny student desk in the rounded corner, facing out the curved windows, unrolled his sleeping bag between his lamp and an aluminum beach chair that would have to double as a nightstand. Then he grabbed his football. It was an official NFL football. His son's, really. Sean had scored his first touchdown with that ball. Ryan read the contracts, leaning back on the beach chair with his feet propped on the windowsill. In exchange for the deposit and first month's rent, Dodge would take half of any income that Ryan made from his patents. Ryan didn't get it. The company he'd worked for when he formulated the invention held all the rights. Engineers have to sign the patent waiver before they can even interview for a job. But there was something about Dodge. Ryan scratched out the 50% and wrote in 25%, initialed it, and took the papers downstairs. Uncomfortable stepping into Dodge's living room, he stopped in the foyer. There was a wide, offset floorboard where a door should have separated Dodge's apartment from the rest of the house. A huge flat-screen TV across from the couch was tuned to a crime show, but no one was watching. Ryan thought about setting the papers on the coffee table, but he wanted to haggle over the patent rights. Not because he thought a dime could be squeezed from them, but because Dodge was the kind of guy who had to be kept at bay. With no door to knock on, Ryan walked through the living room, looked around a corner, and started quietly down a hall. He felt like a burglar until he realized that this was exactly how Dodge wanted him to feel. Hey, Nutter, we need to talk. But there was no answer. At the end of the hall, he walked into a brightly lit kitchen. Dodge sat at a round formica table wearing headphones and plinking away on an electric piano. He glanced at Ryan but kept playing. Ryan waited. Except for the copper pots and pans hanging from the ceiling, everything in the kitchen was starkly white. After a few minutes, Ryan set the pile of documents on the table and eased into a chair. 
Just as he settled down, Dodge pulled off the headphones, stood, and said, In my office. Now that we're business partners, it's time to chat. Ryan followed him back down the hall. The phrase business partners churned in his belly like sour milk. Dodge walked into his office, a sprightly walk, nearly a dance. It did nothing to reduce Ryan's emotional nausea. Dodge sat behind a desk the size of a twin bed and flicked on a lamp. It had a green shade that cast an olive pall, not a pleasant match to Dodge's skin tone. In addition to a blotter, there was an alarming ornament on the desk. Set on a judge's gavel pad was a snub-nosed pistol. Dodge flipped through the documents, adding his signature. You can stay in the hallway, McNear, or take a seat. He motioned to a rocking chair, upholstered in the same diamond-tuck red velvet as the couch. Ryan pulled the chair closer to the desk. Is the gun loaded? There's no such thing as an unloaded gun. Dodge pulled a bottle of Irish whiskey out of a desk drawer and two tumblers. Sorry, I don't have any meth. Funny, Ryan said, and sipped from the glass. Sinking into the sweet-scented fluid, it reminded him of his father. All right, you have six patents that are owned, as far as you know, by Goldcon, a cable manufacturing company whose stock skyrocketed when they introduced fiber-optic technology in 1999. Dodge looked over his glasses for confirmation. Ryan watched his whiskey swirl around in the glass, unsurprised that Dodge could find the information, but noting how fast he'd assembled it. I don't care about the <clears throat> the novel multitasking, multi-threading tool, or the self-optimizing optical network, however you say it. No, it's these two patents that interest me. The ones you co-invented with Foster Reed. Application of fundamental uncertainty to the generation of energy and method of multiple feedback for neural network self-generation of artificial intelligence. Remember those? Ryan smiled. How come deeply technical work that takes years to accomplish never attracts as much attention as the crap that can be cranked out in an hour? Yeah, I, I remember him. Talk to me. Not much to say. A couple of ideas my friend and I played around with. We never expected the patents to be granted. Dodge refilled Ryan's glass. Someone bought the rights to those two patents last week. A university. What university? Tell me about the patents. Chapter 7. Golden Conductors. The premier supplier of wires and cables since electricity first came to Texas, reminted itself Goldcon and jumped on the high-tech locomotive in 1998. Still privately held, but courting investors, they lured a hundred electrical, optical, and computer engineers from telecom powerhouses like Bell Labs and Worldcom. The hires were all in their late 20s, the perfect age for high productivity and low salary. And some of them, like Ryan and Foster, brought the synergy of having worked on the same development team since graduating from college. The work they did on their first day at Goldcon would come to be known by thousands of people as the work of God. But at the time, it was just two engineers trying to come up with the down payment for a boat. Ryan dropped a box of books on the desk of his new cubicle. 
Why is everything in this business blue? I feel like a bee in a huge blue honeycomb. In the neighboring cube, Foster positioned his monitor at the perfect angle and then stepped back. I love it. Smells like a new car. The cubicles didn't have doors, and the partitions were just chest high. Foster attached a Christian fish symbol to the edge of the partition between their cubes. His computer fully functional, but with boxes still piled on his desk, Ryan leaned back in his chair and sorted through the pile of memos in the welcome packet. Hey, did you see this patent award bonus thing? Foster leaned over the wall between them. He had light brown hair, precisely parted on one side, with a little flip over his forehead. I saw the subject header in an email. They're offering a $500 bonus for filling out a patent submission form. So? Foster pursed his lips the way he did when confused. You have an invention? Dude, you're not getting it. We fill out the form, put it in internal mail, and some lawyer who knows jack shit about high tech cuts us a check. Foster sat down, adjusted his glasses, and opened his packet. I see a foosball tournament, a barbecue for the whole engineering team. He laughed and added, Perhaps they'll even have a slumber party. Wouldn't that be great? Ryan said, It's the same game they play at all the big high-tech firms. Whether the patents are useful or not doesn't even matter. They just want to trot out a ridiculous number of applications so that they can impress investors. He stood and looked over to Foster. What are you doing? Signing up for aerobics. If there are any women in this company, that's where to find them. Come on, let's fill out patent applications. It's easy money. If we come up with a real idea and the patent's granted, we get $5,000. Foster made a tisk sound. Okay, Mr. Edison, what's your brilliant invention? My brilliant invention is to fill out as many of these forms as I can before the patent attorney clues in. Remember that guy at Bell Labs who has 100 patents? He told me that most of them were lame ideas dressed up in enough jargon to confuse attorneys at the patent office. He holds a patent for drilling a hole through a chunk of circuit board, called it an optic waveguide. There's already a name for holes in circuit boards. The VIA has a grand history. Yeah, but this one was for a horizontal hole. In a whining, uber-geek tone of pure sarcasm, Foster said, I consider that patentable. Ryan tapped a mechanical pencil on his keyboard and then put the pencil between his teeth and started typing at full speed. He stopped long enough to pull a book out of his backpack, fuzzy thinking, dug around in the boxes he'd just set down and found another, Neural Networks. We're in! The down payment for the Metal Flake Blue Ski Nautique will be in hand shortly. A few months earlier... Foster and Ryan had rented a boat on Lake Texoma. They caught largemouth baths as the sun rose and skied around the lake all day. When they returned the boat, they vowed, complete with pinky shake, that someday they would buy a boat together. With the two books on his lap, Ryan resumed typing. Foster wheeled his chair over and Ryan moved aside so that Foster could scroll through the document. A smile separated Foster's pursed lips. I see what you're doing. Translating the English into engineering. This is a Dilbert moment, except hold it. You know, this might not be such a bad idea. Ryan chewed his pencil and stared at the ceiling for almost a minute. You think? He resumed typing again. Foster went back to his cube. A few minutes later, Ryan said, 
There are tons of patents for artificial intelligence and stuff like neural networks. I want to patent something special, or maybe something ridiculous. He typed for a while longer and then stopped. I've got it. He stood and looked over the partition. Foster, bring me your Bible. My what? The Bible. I don't have one here. Typical Catholic. Why do you need the Bible? I'm submitting a patent for the soul. What? Yeah. Free will, sentience, the soul. I'll take what the Bible says and write an algorithm that does something that, at least to an uneducated observer, would do the same thing that the Bible says a soul does. Scroll through that again. Ryan scrolled and Foster read. A software algorithm that makes decisions based on preconceived concepts of right and wrong. Yes, and to the computer, right and wrong mean making the best choice for the user. After all, the user is God. Get it? Yeah, I get it. He cocked his head to one side. Ryan, you're an eye so thin you're about to fall into H-E double hockey sticks. He read more of the patent submission and added, This is okay. You know, it might even work. I'm glad you approve, Ryan said. Give me your Bible and get a price on the blue skinatik and a slip. Where should we keep it? Well, now, if you ever read the Bible, you'd know that it doesn't say much about the soul. Foster took a worn black leather Bible from his shelf. There's something in Ecclesiastes. He flipped to a page and read aloud. Then shall the dust return to the earth as it was, and the spirit shall return unto God who gave it. Flipping to another page, he said, And of course there's a psalm. There's a psalm for everything. By the Lord's word the heavens were made. By the breath of his mouth all their host. The word soul is used a lot to refer to people, but that's about as much as there is distinguishing the physical, his word, from the spiritual, his breath. Foster leaned over and dug through a box, and then held up an old paperback, The Philosophy of Man and Spirit. Fortunately for you, other misguided Catholics, St. Thomas Aquinas and St. Augustine, spent a lot of time trying to figure it out. He handed the paper back to Ryan, but hugged the Bible to his chest. If they grant this patent, Ryan said, I'll hold the rights to every thought any Christian ever had. Foster laughed. And you're back on thin ice. Two hours later, Ryan sent the patent submission form to the printer. On his way to pick up the hard copy, he leaned into Foster's cube. Foster was typing away with the Bible open in his lap and two paperbacks, each written by a physicist, Stephen Weinberg's The First Three Minutes, and George Smoot's Wrinkles in Time on his desk. Ryan read the file name. A power generator? Foster said, Yes. This is something that's bothered me for a long time. Back in college, my physics professor used to go on and on about energy and time. These books do, too. They use the word symmetry a lot, as though energy and time are somehow like left and right, as if you can't have one without the other. He looked up at Ryan. God created the universe from nothing, but physics insists that you can't get something from nothing. Think about it. The universe had to come from somewhere, so there must be conditions that allow energy to come from nothing. The conditions of creation, the perfect power generator. Is there anything in Genesis other than, and God said, let there be this, that, or the other? Foster said, Genesis may be short on details, but it's irrefutable. 
Doesn't the Bible say that the universe is like 6,000 years old? Two vertical lines formed in Ryan's brow. Well, if you add up the ages of everyone from Adam, yes, you get about 6,000 years. And also, yes, these physicists have evidence that the universe is almost 14 billion years old. Thing is, though, Genesis is the word of God, and the Big Bang is a theory that's still being developed. He tossed wrinkles in time to Ryan. Have you heard of inflation? It's one of the things they had to add to the Big Bang Theory, an epoch when the universe expanded really fast. Surprise! Science discovers something that shortens their measurement of the age of the universe and moves the theory closer to the description in Genesis. I mean, it's still got a long way to go, but the scientists will get it right eventually. Ryan balanced the book on the partition between their cubicles. Why are you obsessed with the Bible being literally true? Even if it was inspired by God, it was still written by men, men who didn't know the first thing about quantum physics. Even if God had told them the whole story, how could those guys have written it down? The Bible is the word of God verbatim. Foster looked back at his monitor and resumed typing. A few minutes later, he looked back up at Ryan and added, as if to make peace, though it would be convenient if the description were more mathematical. Chapter 8 Ryan lay awake in his sleeping bag his first night in Nutter House. When cars drove by, lights flashed off the tarnished copperwork on the ceiling. It reminded him of the day Goldcon's CEO had presented them each a plaque. That the patents were granted had caught Ryan by surprise. At first he'd felt uncomfortable cashing the big checks. The company split the $5,000 for each patent between them. Together they had four checks for $2,500. But it didn't bother Foster. He said that they should trust the patent office, that it happened for a reason. They were skiing off that blue boat the following weekend. Ryan listened to the sleepy old house creak and settle. It was hard to get comfortable not just because the foam under his sleeping bag was lumpy, but because he wanted to go home. He started dozing off, and a vision of the family he left behind woke him. He thrashed around, miserable. These internal battles always ended the same way, with an image of Sean, half daydream, half nightmare. He'd be 13 by now, wearing cleats, pads, and a helmet, walking home after being cut from the team and blaming his absent father for not being there to teach him football's X's and O's. Ryan couldn't stand the fact that he'd abandoned Sean, just like his father had abandoned him. But at least Ryan's dad had the excuse of dying. Someone coughed down the hall. Ryan got up and paced in front of the window. His old friend Foster was probably sleeping peacefully with his wife. He ended up marrying the aerobics instructor. Ryan wondered if Foster knew that a university had bought the rights to their patents.